This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. People just say things, assert, you know, with rarely pausing to bolster their argument by any persuasive mean known to humanity. So uh, we started from one of those assertions, which is that it is uh, better, environmentally speaking, to eat plants than it is to eat animals. That's something you hear a lot. We should all be vegetarians because that's how to save the planet. That's not the only claim you'll hear about giving up meat. Another one is that we'd all be much healthier. Fewer heart attacks, less cancer, longer lives. And that's before you get to the moral arguments around taking animal lives and this whole idea of animal rights. Those are the claims. But what's the evidence? That's just what we'll be looking at this episode. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. Whether or not to eat meat is a very long, very intense, and very personal debate. It's not something we could give you a final right or wrong on. We wouldn't dare. Instead, this episode, we're going to look at all of the claims people have made about why you should give up meat and the arguments for and against those claims. We'll go through the history of each argument and try to figure out whether the claim is true. But this episode is not absolutely everything there is to say on the topic. We cannot cover every argument ever. The ones we're going to discuss are the main ones, the ones you hear all the time. So, so when I was eight, eight years I old. went to, my dad's a doctor, and um, so they, they were demonstrating laser surgery mm-hmm. on, like, a store-bought chicken, like, just a regular old Purdue, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's just so mean. That's so unnecessary to kill a chicken for that. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, I'm eating chicken and I don't have to, and meat in general, so... So it was a matter of conscience. Yeah. To use a big word, I think it's almost a sin that we electively and voluntarily inflict unspeakable suffering on thousands of billions of animals. Okay, first big claim. It's immoral to eat meat because we don't have the right to take animals' lives. That's violent, and violence is bad. This argument goes deep in a bunch of different religions. Most of the early traditions of world religions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, all had a strong strain of uh, nonviolent diet in their ancient teachings. There's for different motivations, but it's interesting, they all believe in ahimsa, which is a fundamental teaching of nonviolence to life. Joanne Davidson is a theology professor at Andrews University Theological Seminary in Michigan. So here's the thing about this claim that eating meat is immoral. It's a belief. 
If you believe, it's true. If you don't, it isn't. But what's interesting is how this question came to be so central to so many different groups and religions. You see, meat became very sacred right at the earliest time that we can go back. Colin Spencer wrote a book called The Heretic's Feast, A History of Vegetarianism. And one of the things he points out is that almost all religions grapple with meat in some way. His reasoning for why is that back in the beginning of our evolutionary history as humans, hunting big game took a group. And it took a group to feast on big animals before they went bad. And so early humans developed group rituals around meat. And then those rituals developed into a deeper set of questions around what is a life and do we have the right to take lives? And so meat became central to most world religions in one way or another. Think of animal sacrifices. The religion that's best known for practicing vegetarianism is Hinduism. It didn't start out that way, but about 3,000 years ago, the doctrine of reincarnation became part of Hinduism, and then so did vegetarianism. Not all Hindus are vegetarian, both then and now. But the logic is, killing animals is violent, and that's like a black mark against your future reincarnation. The same kind of logic is found in Buddhism. But not all Buddhists are vegetarian either. The strictest religion when it comes to the belief that eating meat is bad, no ifs or buts, is Jainism. It's really central. You can't be a Jain and not be a vegetarian. That's Porvi Shah, a Jain and a gastropod listener. I like listening to gastropod while I'm cooking or while I'm eating. Anything that relates to food or stuff like that. For Porvi, whatever she's cooking, it's vegetarian. Jainism developed in India after the dawn of Hinduism. And Jains believe that every living thing has a soul, and so should everything should be treated with equal respect. And so that is why we're all vegetarians. The strictest Jains won't eat vegetables like broccoli or cauliflower because they tend to have insects hiding in them. And no root vegetables at all. That's taking away the lifeblood of the plant. And strict Jains won't eat after dark because they might inadvertently eat something that's alive. These three religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, they're Eastern religions. And that's how I thought of vegetarianism and nonviolence and reincarnation as Eastern ideas. But it turns out I'm wrong. There was an ancient vegetarian, nonviolent, reincarnation-based belief system in the West. Well, vegetarians, as I said, were known right up to the 19th century. I mean, Shelley, the poet, called himself a Pythagorean. Pythagorean, or Pythagorean, as I'd say it in America, that sounds an awful lot like the Pythagorean theorem. Like, you know, math class, figuring out the angles in a triangle. Same dude. Pythagoras uh, is mostly known to us because of the famous triangle, which is taught at school. Uh, he uh, lived between 500 and 600 BC, and he taught mathematics. He was basic to our knowledge of music, and he, he looked at the stars and planets, and he worked out, in fact, then that we went round uh, the sun. 2,000 years before Galileo did. So he was a wonderful kind of genius, really. A renaissance man, 2,000 years ahead of his time. I forgot to add the most important bit, which is that he was vegetarian, the first individual vegetarian we know of. And so at the school, they were all vegetarians. And then after his death, it spread into groups in the Greek society. 
Like the Hindus, Pythagoras believed in reincarnation. And while nobody knows exactly how he got these ideas, he did travel widely. He visited Egypt and was influenced by thought there. Colin thinks that Pythagoras might have actually visited India, too. That's just speculation. Still. He believed that after death, we moved into other bodies and animals. And he once recognized a friend's voice in uh, a dog uh, that he heard barking. <laughs> so you might, well, if you eat a cow, you might very well be eating your grandmother. Long term, Pythagoras's ideas didn't catch on in Europe in the same way that reincarnation and vegetarianism did in the East. But still, if you were a vegetarian in Europe all the way up to the 19th century, you didn't call yourself a vegetarian. You called yourself a Pythagorean, like Shelley. So there were vegetarians, these Pythagoreans who chose not to eat meat because they believed it was wrong. They were there in Europe. They existed. It just wasn't a major movement. Because Christianity was the mainstream religion in Europe. And Christianity had taken a very different position on the morality of eating meat. But you see, Christianity, because of the Old Testament, believed that all the animals were put in the world for the sustenance of man. And so God had a specific purpose for the animals that they should be eaten by men. That was their argument. So the Christian church, especially through the Middle Ages, believed so passionately that uh, you were almost wicked. You were wicked, not to do what God wanted, which was to eat the animals. It could have been different in Christianity. When Christianity was still being formalized as kind of what we know today, there were a few different strands of thought. One of those groups of very early Christians was called the Gnostics. The Gnostics allowed women to become priests as well as men, and they preached the importance of letting go of the material world and fasting and all sorts of ascetic beliefs. And one of their doctrines was not eating meat. But as Christianity became more set in stone under Paul, these Gnostic beliefs kind of died out. Gnostics were actually condemned as heretics. It's so funny to imagine if that version, the Gnostic version of Christianity, had triumphed instead. With the whole world, you see, would uh, be almost vegetarian, really. But that's not how things turned out. Human dominion over animals was really central to Christianity and to Europeans. That all started to change in the 17th century, though. Tristram Stewart is the author of a book called The Bloodless Revolution, all about vegetarianism in Europe from the 1600s onwards. Two things were happening simultaneously in 17th century Europe. Firstly, um, there was a sudden onrush of interest in the culture of uh, Indian vegetarians and their religious beliefs. Travelers from around Europe went to India and wrote with increasing accuracy and curiosity about the vegetarians that they were encountering, Jains and Brahmins, uh, and why they abstained from eating meat. At this time, it's not just that Europeans are traveling the world and landing on new continents and encountering new people. This is also the time of the scientific revolution. And so Europeans are also discovering new ways to see the world. All of this is making them question some very basic beliefs. One of those beliefs had been that animals have no feelings. People came to analyze the nervous system and they found that the nervous system of animals and the nervous systems of humans are really completely indistinguishable. In other words, animals have feelings too. They can suffer. They're much more like us than we thought. And once you realize that, 
you have to rethink how you treat animals and whether it's right or wrong to take their lives. But while scientific advances in anatomy provided arguments against taking an animal's life, other scientific advances made that argument a little murkier. The vegetarian idea that you could go through life without killing any animals was um, blown apart by the discovery with the use of the microscope in the 17th century that there were millions of microscopic animals that were living on the lettuces that the vegetarians wanted us to eat instead. All these new ideas, new science, encounters with entirely different civilizations and landscapes, it all throws European thought into a ferment. And out of that ferment, you get new political ideas. Famously, uh, at the time of the, the French Revolution, when the idea of enfranchising ever greater swathes of the human race in terms of you know having them have democratic uh, rights and representation. Famous books were published on the rights of man and then on the rights of women. People are arguing that slaves have rights. And then uh, you get your vegetarians who um, say, look, the very same arguments that you're making for uh, respecting humans can be made for the argument for respecting the rights of animals. These same centuries-old arguments persist today. You have well-known vegetarians like Peter Singer and Jonathan Safran Foer saying that animals have rights and so it's immoral to eat meat. But there are other ways to look at this question of morality. Animals die in all forms of agriculture. Strawberry growers sometimes shoot deer to keep them out of a strawberry field. And pesticides sometimes kill rodents, too. And you cannot produce food. You cannot eat food without doing some sort of violence. Indeed, you could summarize the argument as eat is murder, not just meat. Even Jane struggle with this. How are you supposed to think about the living microbes in yogurt, you know? But so if it's impossible not to cause some violence with your diet, then the moral argument around vegetarianism really ends up being about how you see the place of humans in nature. So these two historically divergent views of nature, one um, man as part of an ecosystem, the other man as kind of the sympathy bearer that needs to look after animals, people who are much more interested in protecting uh, individuals from suffering. To the ecosystem people, eating meat can be okay. It's part of nature. We're part of nature. There can be ways to eat meat and do so morally. And to the sympathy bearers, each life is precious, and we, as humans with the power of rational thought, we have a responsibility not to cause suffering and death. So the original claim that we started this section off with, vegetarianism is morally better because it avoids causing suffering and death, we started off saying this is a belief, and honestly, we're still there. This isn't something that we think you can say is either right or wrong. To me, and frankly to both of us, there's a lot of gray. I do believe that causing unnecessary suffering is wrong, and that's one of the main reasons why I'm totally against factory farming of animals, which is how most meat is raised. But personally, I think that as long as animals live a good life, it's not then immoral for them to become food, too. Yeah, me too. And that decision for me really does boil down to whether you think we humans are just part of nature, part of the natural cycle, or whether we somehow exist a little outside of it with different responsibilities. You can defend both positions. I'm on the inside nature side of the argument personally. I see meat eating as part of humans' place in the larger ecosystem. But you're not wrong if you don't. It's a worldview thing. This morality question is insanely tough. Entire books have been written on this, and we've left out a lot of nuance. Hopefully our next claim will be a little easier to investigate. Yes, indeed. A vegetarian diet is healthier. I'm Alicia Silverstone, and I'm a vegetarian. 
There's nothing in the world that's changed me as much as this. I feel so much better and have so much more energy. And you, you just keep looking better and better. You look fantastic. You look oh, thank you. Thank you. You I, I are, and I'm, I'm vegan as well, and I know that you're eating plant-based diet, which is, uh, does it, do you just feel much better? It, oh, yeah. First, it's just a good thing to do. It'll be healthier for you. And you put less stress on your cardiovascular system. That's the claim. Is it true? And just like morality, this question has roots in history, too. The debate over whether it was healthier to be a vegetarian also raged in the 1600s and 1700s. Remember how scientists were comparing human and animal anatomy and discovering that we both shared nerves? It wasn't just the nerves they were comparing. It may surprise uh, listeners to know that one of the really big questions that many scientists tried to answer is whether humans were anatomically equipped to digest and consume meat. A lot of attention went onto the structure of our teeth and whether our teeth were more like that of, for example, sheep than of cats. And obviously with our heavy predominance of molars, there was a strong case to say we had herbivorous jaws and herbivorous teeth and not carnivorous ones. We didn't have the sharp fangs of, of a lion or a tiger. People went into our guts and compared them in particular to that of the great apes. But the belief was that they were our closest relatives, that they were herbivorous, and that we shared most of our anatomical features with them. And that, again, was seen as evidence that the human anatomy was not originally designed for meat consumption. This argument is one you'll hear today, but flipped. In the 1700s, scientists were saying that we were primarily designed as herbivores, Today, you'll hear people saying that our teeth and our guts are different from apes who eat a vegetarian diet, and so eating meat is what makes us human. In fact, some people today argue that eating meat is what led us to have bigger brains. And of course, bigger brains means tools and language and culture and everything. Well, that's an entirely erroneous belief. If it was true, then the big cats would be the top species in the world because they'd be uh, solely eating meat. Go Colin. I mean, there's a fairly obvious response to this debate. We're not designed as carnivores or as herbivores. We're a little bit of both. In other words, we evolved as omnivores. Our ancestors were opportunistic and they ate what they could. So the design argument is not going to decide things one way or the other. To go back to the 16 and 1700s, one reason the debates about health are raging is that doctors are seeing some pretty serious widespread health problems. Things like gout and being overweight are on the rise, along with rising wealth. Basically, for the first time, more people than just royalty and the aristocracy could afford to eat meat regularly in large portions. And so they did. Meat was associated with good nutrition, high value nutrition, and pretty much everyone who could ate as much meat as they could afford. Scientists weren't sure it was even possible to live without meat. But this is the time that Europeans are coming into contact with millions of vegetarian Indians. European Pythagoreans found the existence of their eastern counterparts deeply encouraging. And the vegetarians seized on the fact that there were millions of Indians over there uh, surviving very happily uh, without ever consuming meat as proof that um, not only could you, you survive, but indeed the longevity of Indians was often cited as proof that vegetarian diet was healthier. And remember, this is also the time when science is making huge leaps forward. 
and people are starting to understand nutrition a little better. And so suddenly vegetables actually have value. You need vegetables. So the idea of this meat-rich diet that middle classes and the affluent in Europe were subjecting themselves to and all of the, the kind of the diseases that came in its wake, um, things that we might call obesity now, for example, could be cured by going vegetarian. And a band of doctors, indeed, some of the mainstream doctors of the time, were routinely prescribing an abstinence from meat. This claim for a vegetarian diet being healthier, it gets more and more popular over time, to the point where it actually kind of takes over as the main argument for being vegetarian in the West, rather than the moral argument. For example, in America, Bronson Alcott, he's the father of Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women, he was a famous early vegetarian in the 1800s because of equality. He's anti-slavery, he's pro-women's rights, and he believes that vegetarianism is morally right. He used the arguments that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. But then by the time the American Civil War was over, and John Harvey Kellogg, the father of your cornflakes, he was the voice of vegetarianism in America, and his whole thing was health. He ran a sanatorium where people came to eat his weird vegetarian meat substitutes in order to achieve physical perfection. It was about self-improvement, not improving the world. And this is the claim that we're investigating now. Is eating a vegetarian diet actually improving yourself? Is it better for you than eating meat? Was Kellogg right? Joanne told us that one group that's been studied is the Seventh-day Adventists. They're a Christian group that encourages vegetarianism to improve physical and spiritual health. There's this ongoing health study showing how they have much lower incidence of cancer, much lower incidence of diabetes and heart disease. What? Do we actually have a clear-cut answer on this one for a change? Well, no. Like everything we cover, it's not quite so simple. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam. The soggy morning jog. The why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. So 
So Joanne told us that studies on thousands of seven-day Adventists seemed to show that vegetarians and vegans had lower mortality rates than meat eaters. And coming from the other angle, there are also plenty of studies showing that meat is bad for you. Marco Springman is a researcher at Oxford University who did one of those studies. It took a big-picture look at the research around meat eating. For example, we know from large observational uh, studies that the consumption of red meat increases your chance of getting uh, coronary heart disease by about 25%, of stroke by somewhat around 10 to 15%, colorectal cancer by the same amount, and, and also type 2 diabetes by a similar amount. Statistics, statistics, what do those percentages actually mean? Well, Marco and some other scientists tried to forecast out to 2050. He took studies that have been done on heart disease and on cancer and on diabetes and the connection to diet, and he extrapolated out from there. He calculated how many fewer people would die if people ate what the dietary guidelines said we should eat, which is less meat than we eat today, or if they ate a vegetarian diet, or if they ate a vegan diet. So we found that you could reduce diet-related mortality the more plant-based you go. So in the dietary guidelines scenario, we estimated that about 5 million lives could be saved in, in 2050. In the vegetarian scenario, about 7 million lives, and in the vegan scenario, about 8 million lives. Those are big numbers. Marco's saying that by 2050, 7 million fewer people would die of diet-related diseases each year if we all ate a vegetarian diet. Okay, so we have vegetarians living longer and with lower risk of heart disease, and we have meat eaters, even those who follow a healthy diet, more of them are dying from heart disease and cancer and other chronic diseases, according to Marco. This seems like clear-cut evidence that the health claims people make for vegetarianism are right, no? So I'm Dr. Frankie Phillips. I'm a registered dietitian based in the southwest of England, and my area of expertise is vegetarian nutrition. We thought it would be a good idea to check in with someone who spent a lot of time studying exactly these questions. It turns out that the Seventh-day Adventist study results, showing that vegetarians are so much healthier, Frankie says that there are other factors that might contribute to them living longer than meat eaters apart from just being vegetarian. Being vegetarian is part of that whole spectrum of being more healthy. And we know that if people are more concerned about their health, then they're probably not smoking tobacco, um, having a moderate alcohol intake. They might be taking more physical activity. So that might be part of why vegetarians seem healthier in the studies. As people, they're just more health conscious in general. And those meat is bad studies that Marco was quoting, there are some criticisms of those too. One is that the studies don't separate out processed meat like pepperoni and bacon from unprocessed meat like a steak or pork tenderloin. Because other studies have shown that processed meat seem to be worse for you. And those meat is bad studies, they also lump together grass-fed beef with industrially raised grain-fed beef, for example. But there's good research showing that grass-fed has healthier fats. So there's definitely some nuance missing there. That said, there are some reasons why vegetarians might in fact be healthier, in addition to going to the gym and not smoking. We know that people who are vegan do tend to have much higher intakes of fiber. And fiber is really useful because it helps to ensure a healthy gut. And it can also help us to feel fuller. So we might not perhaps eat quite so many calories. And we know that vegans tend to be leaner as well than meat eaters and other vegetarians. 
Fiber isn't the only good thing in vegetables and whole grains. There's lots of great nutrients, and there's lots of science to support the health benefits of eating lots of vegetables. But Frankie said there might be some health problems with the vegetarian diet, too. The main foods that we get from meat and fish include iron um, and some of the B vitamins. Animal-derived foods are certainly not the only source of iron, as Popeye will tell you. But the kind of iron you find in spinach and beans and so on... It's not as easy for your body to absorb. Still, most people can get enough iron on a vegetarian diet if they pay attention to what they're eating. But there's another nutrient that we get from animal products that's impossible to get if you don't eat meat, eggs, or dairy, and that's vitamin B12. Now, vitamin B12 is needed for good blood formation and uh, for nerve function. And so without it, then there can be quite severe repercussions if you're including um, eggs still and including dairy foods, then you will still be having some of that B12 in your diet. And we only need a, a minuscule amount, a really tiny amount of vitamin B12 to stay healthy. So if you're vegan, um, your your diet is going to be completely devoid of vitamin B12 if you don't look for sources which are fortified with the vitamin. Vegans have to rely on getting B12 that's made by bacteria and then added to cereals and nut milks or taken as a supplement. And vitamin B12 deficiency is bad if you're an adult, but it's really, really bad if you're a fetus or a growing kid. Vegan kids have been hospitalized with deficiencies, which is why last year, a super right-wing Italian politician called Elvira Savino introduced a bill into Italy's parliament to send parents who raise their kids vegan to jail. Elvira says it's reckless and dangerous eating behavior for a kid. But Frankie, the British nutritionist, does not agree with Elvira the fascist. It's quite easy to have a a vegan or vegetarian child brought up and to make sure that they, they have a nutritionally balanced diet. But there are a few areas where a little bit more care needs to be taken. So kids can be okay on a vegan diet if their parents are careful about nutrition. But what about even earlier? Vitamin B12 is crucial to a developing fetus. The fetus needs it for cell differentiation and also to develop neurons, a.k.a. the brain. So it's important. Some scientists studied this question, and they found that both vegan and vegetarian women had worryingly low levels of vitamin B12, although they don't know if the levels were low enough to harm a developing fetus. Still, they said it's best to play it safe. They think every pregnant vegetarian should take a supplement. So the claim that we're trying to prove or disprove is that eating vegetarian is healthier. And even though it seemed pretty clear-cut a few minutes ago, now it seems like it's really not. For one thing, there's nothing intrinsically healthier about a meat-free diet. Meat, dairy, and eggs have lots of things in them that are actually important to our health. And if you just replace them with junk food, that's not going to make you healthier. You can be a vegan and just eat potato chips and drink wine. Um, you know, I mean, those those would be, be kind of, you know, suitable for a vegan as well. That actually sounds like a perfect dinner. But anyway, the other thing is, obviously, you can include some meat and dairy and eggs in your diet and still eat lots and lots of whole grains and veggies and fruit. There's no reason you couldn't be consuming as much fiber and vitamins and antioxidants as a vegan. And then there's the B12 thing. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman wrote a book called Defending Beef, and she thinks that animal products are part of a healthy diet. So I actually strongly reject the argument that we should all be vegans because I actually think if you're eating a diet that requires you to take a manufactured supplement, then there's probably something wrong with your diet. (laughs) That's a position I sympathize with, actually. But that's if you're a vegan. 
We're looking at whether vegetarian diets are healthier, and you do at least get some vitamin B12 as a vegetarian who eats eggs and dairy. Even Corinna Kubnick, she's the author of the study we just mentioned, the one that pointed out the potential harm of not getting enough B12 during pregnancy, she does not want to warn people off a vegetarian diet. The problem with doing a lot of studies on vegetarian diets and pointing out the risks is kind of distracting from the general issue we have that people live a very, very unhealthy diet. And I wish everybody would be as healthy as people are on a vegetarian diet. (laughs) All this back and forth. And here we are. It's not actually rocket science after all. You can eat healthily as an omnivore. You can eat healthily as a vegetarian. It's not definitively proven by the research that one is healthier than the other because it's the overall balance in your individual diet that matters. That said, the science on this does seem to show that a vegetarian diet is healthier than the average Western diet for sure. That is a pretty low bar, mind you. To quote Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That seems to be the general consensus, and that's where we've ended up here too. So that's the deal with not eating meat and your personal health. But what about the health of the planet? To avoid catastrophic climate change. We need to consider what we eat. Less meat, less heat. More life. And that is our third and final claim. Being a vegetarian is better for the planet. That's pretty widely accepted as fact. I've absorbed it as the truth for sure. But is it? This argument also goes way back in history, back to one of Tristram's favorite centuries, the 1700s. The environmental argument back then was that meat was not a great use of land. Because it hogged, uh, sorry for the pun, but it hogged the resources of Earth to satisfy the appetite of a few at the expense of the many. And that argument, which emerged in the context of the utilitarian philosophy uh, of the late 18th and early 19th century, um, the idea that we are obliged to create the greatest amount of good and happiness in the world. And if that's the case, then we should be feeding the greatest number of people and not wasting resources by feeding it um, to livestock and only feeding a few people with the meat and dairy. This argument emerged in Britain at this time for a couple of reasons. One, Britain is tiny. There's not a lot of land, full stop. So with population growth, how was everyone going to get fed? And then there's another reason, the agricultural revolution, which started in England. That's what made it possible to have big fields of crops rather than little hand-tilled patches. So you could just grow a bunch of grains. Today, nearly three centuries later, that is still one of the main arguments in favor of vegetarianism. And it was one of the main points we heard from Guidon Eschel, too. He's a professor of environmental physics, and he wrote a paper that tried to figure out the environmental impact of beef versus pork versus chicken versus dairy and eggs versus a few main non-meat American crops such as potatoes. I mean, look, we have now 7.4 or so billion people on Earth. Just in the U.S., there is a a third of a billion right now. These population densities far exceed the carrying capacity, really, of the resources available. Guidon's argument echoes those British utilitarians precisely. If you give up beef... The differences are staggering. (laughs) Just staggering, you know. You, You give up this tiny fraction of your diet per day to reallocate the resources to something else, in this case, soybeans, and you can sustain in full almost four individuals. 
Guidon's argument isn't just about land use, though. His paper also looks at the impact on water and pollution and greenhouse gas emissions of each of these different categories of meat and animal products. The most amazing thing uh, is really the beef is in a firmament entirely of its own. Nothing comes close to beef. It is uh, 10 to 50 times more resource intensive than anything else. Plants by far are the most efficient. Then you have poultry, pork, eggs, and dairy to some extent, although there's some subtlety there. And then in a completely different category, as distinct as the first class of the Queen Elizabeth II from swimming across the Atlantic is beef. Guidon is not a lonely voice in the wilderness here. Other studies agree, particularly when it comes to climate change. We heard from Marco Springman earlier about the lives that could be saved by not eating meat. His study also looked at the greenhouse gas emissions that could be saved that way. At the moment, we know that uh, more than a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions are due to the food system, uh, in particular due to livestock. For example, we know that in order to produce an equivalent amount of protein, beef emits about 250 times more than legumes. And on a weight basis, beef emits about 20 times more than fruits and vegetables. Again, Marco projected out to 2050. He found that if everyone became vegan, global greenhouse gas emissions from food would be down 70 percent. A vegetarian diet would reduce them 60 percent. The point Marco's making is a vegetarian diet can dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. At least using the data that Marco was working with. And this is where it gets complicated. Nicolette, she wrote the book Defending Beef. She disagrees with the data Marco started with to get these figures. The large part of carbon emissions that make up this stat, that livestock are responsible for 25% of the global total, she says there are a lot of problems with that number. One of the flaws, a big chunk of that total livestock emissions number, comes from deforestation in South America. Basically, forests being cut down for either cattle grazing or to grow cattle feed. But that's A, a one-time deal, and B, to do with Brazilian laws around owning land rather than actually being necessary to feed beef. So deforestation is a red herring. It's not inherent to livestock emissions. The other big part of global warming from beef, you may have heard this, is methane. Cow farts. But Nicolette says this, too, is not totally straightforward. Cows don't necessarily fart as much as scientists think they do. You know, what the cattle are eating, how they're being managed on the pasture, um, how healthy the soils are. All these things are really important factors. None of that is ever taken into account in these methane totals. What they do is they take one animal, they put a the poor creature, literally they sort of drill into the side of the body, they put this bag onto their um, digestive tract, and they measure the methane that's coming out of their digestive tract. And they say, okay, that's how much a you know, X animal of X size uh, emits. And therefore, you got to multiply that by the number of animals worldwide. And that's their methane contribution. Well, that's absurd. It's absurd because it totally depends on what the animals have been eating. It also depends on their gut microbes. It depends on how quickly the animals grow, which can vary dramatically in different ecosystems. The final total even depends on the methane-eating microbes in the local soil. So there are good arguments that the 25% of global emissions number that Marco was working with is wrong. 
It's overstated. The other thing that Marco's doing is using the model of conventional, large-scale animal farms. On these farms, yes, methane comes from cow farts, but it also comes from manure lagoons, and those lagoons are a huge problem both for global warming and local air quality. And then there's the runoff that pollutes local waterways. That's also a big problem. But again, Nicolette's point is that's not inherent. Beef doesn't have to be raised that way. If we de-industrialize the livestock industry, which is what I, I'm arguing for, um, a lot of those emissions just disappear. The kind of farmer ranch that Nicolette is advocating, these are often on the smaller side. Farmers often have plants and animals. Animals might help fertilize the field and eat some of the farm's leftover products. Cows don't have to eat people food like grain. They're eating grass. These aren't big monocultures or huge sheds with tens of thousands of cows. These are the opposite of industrial agriculture. And so the response you sometimes hear at this point in the debate is that maybe Nicolette is right and well-managed livestock don't have such a huge and terrible impact, but we can't possibly raise enough beef for all of us on Nicolette's kind of ranch. That's Guidon's response anyway. It's basically boutique farms. It's not really serious uh, food production. Uh, in term, I mean, it's plenty serious, but it's just not in scope very serious. Okay, Uh, but um, can they feed the world? That's the question. And the answer is, you know, it's trivially no. And once again, Nicolette says not so fast. There's very good counter evidence on this. Um, Other divisions of the Food and Agriculture Organization, the United Nations, have have put out a couple of reports about the importance, the actually essential nature of converting all agriculture to sustainable and organic methods. And they they say over and again in different reports that they've put out that you can produce all the, the food that the world needs. I feel like I'm refereeing a prize fight here. Has Nicolette knocked Guidon and Marco out? Not quite yet. She's got a few more punches to throw. Nicolette says there are some landscapes where it's tough to grow plants all year, but animals can grow pretty well. And so if you're, for example, let's say living in the Northeast in the middle of the winter, you know, it's pretty much impossible to raise uh, fruits and vegetables unless you're raising them in a greenhouse. And actually, milk or meat might be by far the most environmentally appropriate food for that time of year in that location. Again, it's all about the nuance and the complexity. If you live in Southern California, sure, be vegetarian. But it might not be the best environmental choice in other landscapes. And there's one other kind of counterintuitive point. Cattle can actually be good for certain ecosystems. This is Nicolette's killer right hook. Literally just a few hundred years ago in the United States, we had you know, prob- around 100 million bison, which are huge grazing ruminants. So there were actually more bison on the land back then than there are adult cattle in the U.S. today. And those bison were a crucial part of the grassland ecosystem. Nicolette is basing this part of her argument on the work of a guy named Alan Savory. He argues that it's the absence of these herds that is actually the Earth's greatest problem today. And that the domesticated animal, the domesticated cattle, rather than being a blight on the landscape, if it's well managed, is one of the very few ways that we can hope to restore the ecosystem's function the way they're supposed to be. Alan Savory is an ecologist who started out his career dead set against livestock. But after years of research, he's come 180. His studies have shown that properly managed livestock herds can actually have huge environmental benefits. Cattle can help soil sequester more carbon and retain more water and harbor more biodiversity. So you can have a meat system like the one we have today that's really harmful to the environment. Or you can have a meat system that maybe even helps the environment. And you can have a vegetarian diet that has to be grown in greenhouses or flown in and relies on irrigation and fertilizers. Or a vegetarian diet that has a really small footprint. 
it's completely context dependent. And in some instances, for example, a waste-fed pig or a chicken, or indeed a cow or a sheep grazing on leaves and hillside grass that we can't otherwise use, is to minimise our impact while satisfying our nutritional needs. And as long as we stick to the idea that the world can provide some meat and some dairy products, but a hell of a lot less than the average per capita consumption is in Western Europe and America, I think we can balance our appetite, our moral philosophy, and our daily practice. Tristram wrote a whole book on vegetarianism, but he thinks that the V word... That label is where this whole discussion about eating meat or not goes off the rails. I'll make no secret of the fact that I regard the creation of uh, the word vegetarian and the creation of the Vegetarian Society in 1842 as the biggest strategic error that vegetarians made. Before that moment, the issue was one that many people engaged with. The moment you've uh, created a name for yourselves and a society, vegetarians and vegetarianism, uh, you created a pigeonhole that people can put you in and thereafter ignore. And that is indeed arguably what happened post-1842. It becomes a closed-off debate only of interest to people on the inside of that particular pigeonhole and uh, pretty much boring for everyone else. And that is where we're going wrong. These are not niche questions. These questions about morals and animal suffering and health and the environment, they're questions that everyone should be thinking about, whether you include meat in your diet or not. And the vegetarian label, that doesn't help open up that bigger conversation to more of us. I think it, it is the creation of a polarizing identity that creates that challenge. Um, it, it implies that I am on the side of the good and you are on the side of the wrong. And that unsurprisingly, puts people's backs up. Mine, too. But so to kind of round up the first questions we opened the show with, and I'm going to avoid that polarizing V word, is not eating meat better morally for your health and for the environment? In today's industrial food system, the answer is likely yes, it probably is. So if you want to give up meat for those reasons, go ahead. But our food system doesn't have to be this way. And some people are creating a different system. They're growing meat in a responsible way. And Nicolette says that if you buy some of that meat, again, overall, not as much meat as is in the average Western diet. But if you do eat meat, as most of us still do, and if you buy that responsibly grown meat, what you're actually doing is voting for these systems. I never tell people who don't eat meat that they should eat meat. But if you're already an omnivore, I think the really interesting ethical question is, um, what can I do with my dollars that are going to support improvements in the food system in the direction that I want things to go in? I think every individual should be examining what they're eating. Um, is it helpful? Was it raised in an ecologically sound way? Is it supporting the right kinds of farms, the kinds of farms that you want to be supporting? You know, is it is it comporting with your values? And is it delicious? <laughs> we are always on the side of deliciousness. And that's it for this episode. A huge thanks to our interviewees for this episode. Joanne Davidson, listener Porvi Shah, Frankie Phillips, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, Marco Springman, Corinna Kubnick, Gidon Eschel, Tristram Stewart, and Colin Spencer. We have links to their books and articles on our website, gastropod.com, and you should definitely check them out. 
There is so much good stuff we couldn't squeeze in. Some of that good stuff will be going in our special email newsletter for sustaining supporters. Anyone who gives $5 an episode or more through Patreon or on our website can look forward to getting lots of extra vegetarian goodies in their inbox next week, including the stories of two very famous vegetarians, Gandhi and Hitler. And we're back in a couple of weeks with an episode all about the weird world of wine. In case you were wondering, the celebrities making the vegetarian claims you heard were, in order, a young Natalie Portman, Moby, Alicia Silverstone, Ellen DeGeneres, Bill Clinton, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Did you guess correctly? Till next time. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. <laughs> 